0: One Sunday night, I had gone to bed and it wasn't late, and on the wireless I could hear it. Everybody knew something was happening. We were scared to death. I was in our family
1: home and listening to the radio. I. Uh, was only 17 and i was in the fruit shop at mortdale Fabellero
0: brothers fruit shop and the radio was going and that's when i got the message mr menzies the prime minister came on to make a special announcement
2: fellow australians it is my melancholy duty to inform you officially that in consequence of a persistence by germany in her invasion of poland great britain has declared war upon her, and that as a result, Australia is also
3: at war.
0: My mother came into where I was in bed and said, Don't think you're going to the war. I just felt, Well, what's going to happen now? Well, what's the world
1: going to be like? I suppose I wanted to show that I could do something on my own. You know? mm didn't realise what it it entailed.
0: At the beginning of the war was a general feeling of, we must do something about it. Not really knowing what was to come and how serious it would become. Well, me and the boys had to do something. We're Australians.
4: From uniting, this is my life at war, a six-part series featuring first-hand experiences of the everyday Australians who served in World War II. I'm Jefferson Spratt
5: and I'm Lee Taylor. Almost one million Australians served in World War II. Today, twelve thousand remain. Most are in their 90s. Some are over hundred years old. Maybe your grandad, nan, or uncle served. Maybe you've never spoken to a veteran never had the chance.
4: The thing is, that chance is slipping away. Every year we lose more and more of our veterans, and when they die, so do their stories and the memories of the sacrifices they made. We believe that these are stories that need to be told. So we spent the last year speaking to these veterans in Uniting Aged Care Homes and Retirement Villages to ask about their experiences. We heard stories of why teenagers volunteered to fight against men they'd never met.
3: Uh, well, I, I, firstly, I, I thought I was capable of doing such a job and it was my duty for doing such a job.
5: How they discovered the enemy on Australian shores. Well, I, what I thought was,
0: this is the war. This is war and they're on our doorstep.
4: The challenges faced by service women and Indigenous soldiers.
0: Some of the women should get a lot
1: of recognition they did wonderful things. We are immensely proud of our
5: indigenous veterans. And the impact the war left on our veterans.
0: Even though I was back in Australia, my mental state was, I won't be here tomorrow.
4: Many of these stories have never been told. I've never ever disclosed that story to any person before.
5: On the 75th anniversary year at the end of World War II, join us and war historian, David Wilson, as we follow the journey of these Australian veterans. And it all starts now. Part one, enlistment. Okay, so let's go back to September 3rd, 1939, and the radio broadcast from Prime Minister Menzies
2: I know that in spite of the emotions we are all feeling, you will show that Australia is ready to see it through. May God in his mercy and compassion grant that the world may soon be delivered from this agony.
1: That was a shattering blow to everybody. I was just worried or frightened, really, that, that my dad might have to have to go. Anyone with a son and daughter of military age was was scared that their child might have to go.
0: What would happen if we were taken over by Germany or Japan? Hitler was a real threat, you know.
3: And then comes Poland, Hitler's terrible blitzkrieg, the merciless lightning war against the helpless armies of a peace-loving people.
0: Everybody knew something was happening. Hitler was on the go for for a few years.
4: This is Bruce Robertson.
0: I served as a wireless operator in World War II. I'm 100 years old.
4: Bruce doesn't look a day over 70. He's crowned with a full head of silver hair and is as sharp as a tack. He's wearing a navy blue suit jacket with four medals proudly displayed on his chest. Below that is his squadron crest and their motto, Strike Swiftly.
0: If you went to the pictures, the films, and uh, there'd be a newsreel on. And here was Germany building these beautiful, big, beautiful-looking warships and aeroplanes, and thousands of soldiers in a square marching along with rifles. So we knew something was cooking.
4: Bruce's father died of the bubonic plague when he was just a few years old, leaving his mother to raise four young kids and it meant that she was fiercely protective of her family. So when Bruce was listening to Prime Minister Menzies' address...
0: My mother came into where I was in bed and said, don't think you're going to the war. She'd had a taste of the First World War, and uh, she just didn't want that to happen to me. It was a terrible time for the mothers and wives and sisters and so on.
2: The women were nervous about this. They didn't want their menfolk exposed to, well, at times, uh, lethal risk. This is Lester
5: Warburton. My age is 99, and I was an Air Force navigator in World War II. Lester is a sensitive and thoughtful man. He has piercing blue eyes and the same pencil-thin moustache you'd see on all the movie stars from the 30s. Think, or Google, Errol Flynn, or Clark Gable. He tells us that during the announcement, he and a friend were sitting around the radio with his dad, a former World War I pilot.
2: Yes, he took me and Fred Watson, sat us down in the lounge room of my home, and he didn't uh, censor himself in any special way. He made made quite clear... That war was definitely no fun. I said, we must do this. We have an obligation, but um,
5: we'd rather not. So we know that Australia is at war, but who is being asked to enlist? And what were they actually being asked to do? To find out, Jefferson and I went to see a war historian.
6: David? Yeah. Come on in, guys. Oh, we can't shake hands, but we'll do the elbow bump.
5: So could you please introduce yourself and tell us what
6: you do? My name's David Wilson and uh, I'm an ex-Army officer. At the
4: moment, I'm a historian and a researcher. Okay, so we've heard this announcement from Menzies, but what was the reaction from the public? Initially,
6: and immediately after Menzies' announcement, there was uh, a bit of uncertainty We didn't exactly know what the commitment would be from Australia to support the United Kingdom. And also, there was a little bit of uh, uncertainty about the location where men might be required to fight. But who was being asked to enlist? Was there a conscription? In uh, October 1939, Menzies announced uh, the reintroduction of military training, compulsory military training known as the Universal Service Scheme. The requirement was for all unmarried men over the age of 21 to complete uh, three months training with the CMF. So you mentioned the CMF. Is there a difference between the CMF and the forces that served overseas? Because a lot of our veterans, they fought in Europe. Yes, uh, this was a real dilemma for Menzies and the Australian government because the Defence Act of 1903 was purely for the defence of Australia. Menzies had to create a second AIF, for those men who volunteered to serve overseas. So for those that did want to voluntarily enlist, uh, where did they have to go? The government set up uh, recruiting centres and recruiting depots and a man would arrive, sign the enlistment papers and do an initial medical.
5: Was there any reason why people couldn't enlist? Um, Was there anyone turned away?
6: Well, yes, um, age was a very significant factor. In, in the recruitment process. And this occurred um, at both ends of the spectrum. So at the upper end, you had men who were theoretically too old to enlist, who used such tricks as uh, dyeing their hair with boot polish or women's hair dye, and put their ages down when they went to enlist. At the other end of the spectrum, you had men who were under young men who were under the age of 20, um, and one way they could enlist was to get uh, written permission from their parents or otherwise they just falsely declared their age. I put my age up.
2: They never asked for a birth certificate any anything like that. They just said, name, it's Alan Alcock, age uh, 21, right next.
1: You had your parents at home, you were worried about what was going to happen to them if the country was invaded. You had your friends, your girlfriends. That's why you went. And that's how the population felt, the young ones. All my class. Out of 40 kids, there was two that didn't go into the services. Well, it was just a thing you did in that time.
2: It was my duty to look after my country and to um, assist in the war against Japan.
4: Everyone had their own reason for signing up. Some would be enlisting for the promise of a regular wage. For others, it was an adventure, a chance to see the world. But what impact did this have on their families?
3: My father didn't agree, as I said. And he said, oh, you don't want to get out there, son, you'll get killed. I said, never mind, Dad, I like this country. And I'm sorry, Father, this is what I'm going to do.
4: This is Douglas Sando. I was
3: a flying officer in World War II. I'm 97 years old.
4: Doug's father owned a farm in country South Australia, where his family worked on the many acres.
3: I was a country boy and I wanted to get in and be in the action. And I said, oh, I don't know to stay here, milking cows for father forevermore. Yes, that was a pretty humdrum sort of life. This was excitement. We've got to win the war to stay alive, basically. Father said, oh, don't be stupid, son. You'll get killed if you did. I said, I know there's that risk, Dad. And I'm sorry, Father, this is what I'm going to do. And he just gave up and said, all right, son. It's your risk, it's your life.
5: Lester's father, who you may remember, was a fighter pilot in World War I. He saw things differently.
2: My dad took me aside and stressed the importance of our mission as representing democracy
5: at that time. Ask any child who their hero is, and many will proudly say their father. During our conversation, Lester would smile every time he mentioned his dad and often referred to his great war reputation. He wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. So it's no surprise that his father was with him on the day he enlists. They both arrive at a small community hall in Sydney's Woolloomooloo. Lester tells us he's shuffled into a small room and is instructed to salute upon his arrival. He is faced with a table of stern-looking men, all Air Force veterans from World War I. Lester is just 17 years old. I was interviewed
2: by a pilot officer, a navigation officer and a gunnery officer, and all the pitching to get my uh, agreement and enlistment for their interests. Dad,
5: being a pilot, naturally was pushing his, his group. But before Lester has a chance to speak, the commanding officer turns to him and says...
2: Now, what would you like to do in your supporter of the Empire. And I said, I would like to be, and I paused, I remember, because they were expecting me to say, I'd like to be a pilot, sir. But I said, I'd like to be a navigator, sir.
5: The room falls silent. Lester holds his breath. The navigation officer leaps to his feet. He said,
2: got him. It was obvious that we were fairly rare animals and so to secure one, a willing navigator trainee was rare and at the same time uh, exciting to them. I never regretted making that decision.
5: Knowing how much his father wanted him to be a pilot, I asked him how he reacted to the news. Did his dad say he was proud of his decision?
2: Yes, he did. Only on one occasion, I regret to say. But it was enough to make me feel that I'd done my best and that any sacrifice was well worth, worthwhile.
1: No longer a civilian, but now an enlisted member of the Air Force. What brings about the change in you, yourself? What fits you to take your place in such a flight as this? You change into your uniform
0: with pride and joy.
3: And here come the Aussie hats, a legion of them. And here come the boots, Australian boots made from Australian hides. The tenderfoot breaking them in might complain, but they're stout and strong, none are tougher.
4: David, when you enlist, one of the first things that you get is a uniform. How does that change you? So when
6: men and women enlist, they become part of a force Um, They become part of a body of men or women capable of performing a job for their government. And the uniform is the outward manifestation of their commitment to that group. It's an open declaration of their commitment to their country, and it's a great source of pride. Well, I was
0: proud enough to be in the Air Force, and they were the the best uniforms (laughs) and All the girls love them.
4: Here's Bruce, our 100-year-old wireless operator.
0: Oh, it was wonderful. Absolutely. The king of England owned that uniform and he's allowed me to wear it. So that was a big thing.
4: Bruce continues to describe the uniform for us. It consisted of a woolen visor cap with the RAF badge.
0: We had a tunic, which had two top pockets with buttons, big buttons, and two side buttons, two side pockets blue trousers, and it was called Air Force Blue. And you had a a blue shirt on with a black tie. And you left everyone else for dead when you were wearing that uniform.
5: So Bruce has this romantic notion of the uniform, but Lester, our navigator, had a completely different experience. His uniform comes with a warning.
2: They warned me that it's a human tendency to be pleased and excited by the glamour of a military uniform. It's serious and you've got to be ready for uh, emotional shock. Uh, They had stressed that it's not kid stuff, that I must always take it seriously and prepare. Properly.
4: David, I just want to go back to the training. How could they get thousands of civilians prepared for war in such a short period of time? Yes, well, this was a huge challenge for the government.
6: They had to organise training camps. They had to select instructors. They had to organise equipment. And, for instance, uh, there was a, a, a basic shortage of even rifles, because the government had sent a boatload of um, of our rifles across to the United Kingdom to make up for the losses at Dunkirk. So it was an enormous challenge for them to get everybody trained.
1: It was a
4: schmottel.
1: The training when we first went in was very bad, very disorganized, no equipment.
4: This is Raymond Aspelt.
1: I was a craftsman in the 110th Brigade
4: workshops,
1: and I am 97 years of age.
4: Raymond was an apprentice mechanic before he joined the Army at 18 years old.
1: They were one of the skills because they didn't have them. They could train an infantryman in three months, but they couldn't train tradesmen in that time.
4: So the Army would have to rely on people who already had skills, like Raymond.
1: We didn't have the training we should have had because we were too busy working. It took them months and months to organise things and I hope that it never happens again. We had next to nothing. It was, would have been two months
5: before we even got a rifle. Remember Doug, our farm boy from South Australia? I wanted to know what his training experience was like in the Air Force. He was so desperate to leave his father's farm what would he do if he failed? And remember, he has never flown a plane before. Was he nervous? Oh,
3: no, the excitement of youth, my man. That's what it was, it, oh, that might be fun. It really was great because we had very good instructors and it had to get to a certain level and they told you your mistakes or he'd take you for another flight and say, now look you, Doug, you're not doing too well there, you better have a bit more practice we were well informed as what was involved. Now, you may not get back, you might get shot, and, you know, you had to take those things into a heart and say, well, do I want to do that? When there was a group of you, you said, oh, let's give it a go, mates, because you tended to take on to the excitement of life, don't you, in, in a situation like that.
4: So Bruce, our wireless operator, had to train for all types of situations, But there was one particular training exercise that he could never prepare for.
0: When we trained at uh, Point Cook and we were in a big biplane, DH-86B de Havilland biplane, and another trainee plane came around behind our plane coming in and just slipped straight into the sea in front of all the boys, it had banked too sharply and just dropped into the water. We lost countless planes. Port Phillip Bay would have numerous aeroplanes in the bottom there. Fellows lost their lives, of course. So sad to think that this was happening. How could that happen?
3: Government and people of Australia are prepared. Men like these will fight for the cause of empire, if need be, to the last man. Finest types of our young manhood the new AIF is fired with the splendid traditions of the old. The spirit of Anzac lives on. We are going over to fight for Australia. It is Her War too. Australia will be there.
5: Watching this footage of Australian soldiers leaving for war, it's like New Year's Eve and Australia Day all rolled into one. There's troops marching down the main street. They're soaking up every last minute of this hero send-off.
4: We can see this huge cruise liner, almost eclipsing the harbour bridge in the background. Troops jostle on deck for the best view, and there's torsos sticking out of tiny windows just to get one last glimpse of their loved ones. Just a few months after hearing Prime Minister Menzies' address, the first convoy of Australian servicemen and women were off to join the war. But waiting for them is an enemy that none have ever faced before. It will be both a battle against a physical enemy. If they shoot at me, we are got to shoot back to save your life. It's a matter of survival,
5: and a battle within. Oh, you yes, said
2: roller coaster of emotions. It is very
5: stressful. I think it could be almost lethal. For our veterans, their life at war has only just begun.
0: The Americans were, uh, oh, look at those Australians down there. They were really giving it. Aren't they fantastic? They're our brothers.
4: That's next time on My Life at War. This series is brought to you by Uniting. It wouldn't have been possible without the incredible veterans currently living in Uniting Residential Aged Care throughout New South Wales and the ACT. You can see their service photos, exclusive videos, and so much more at uniting.org veterans. There's a link in the show notes.
5: To make sure you don't miss an episode, click on the subscribe button in your podcast app. It's free. If you liked the episode, please leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback and it helps other people find the show. This episode was produced by Tribecast Media and was created and written by me, Lee Taylor.
4: And me, Jefferson Spratt. Post-production by Deadset Studios, including story editing from Kelly Reardon and sound design by Bryce Halliday. A special thanks as well to David Wilson, a war historian.